top five anything just gives me anxiety, to be very honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm like, what? Merry Christmas, listeners, and welcome to this Force 5 mini-episode. And it's going to be a short one because it's the holidays. You've got presents to open, snow to shovel maybe, I've got football to watch, and eggnog to drink. So on today's show, just a couple of things I've been watching. We're going to start with uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. And of course, to get into that, I'll have to go a little bit into the first one. And then the new film, Finest Kind, will have a review, which is streaming right now on Paramount+. Plus. But first, last week, I had the Christmas draft between the co-chairs of the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast, Jack Encarnacio and J.P. Sorrow. People voted across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And at the end of a very tight battle, and I mean very tight, the results are in. With 146 total votes, J.P. Sorrow walks away with the victory by just two votes at a grand tally of 74 to 72. J.P. took Twitter 31 to 24 and Facebook 11 to 8. Well, Jack took Reddit 20 to 12 and Instagram was a stone cold tie at 20 apiece. Congratulations to JP from The Lapsed Fan. And I hope that everybody listening watched something on those lists today or this weekend because they were 10 of the best Christmas films ever made. All right, let's talk Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 from 1987. But first, in order to talk about that film, we have to talk about the original Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984. In that movie, Mr. Sims says, I guess they think the old guy's scary. Silly, isn't it? And he's talking about Santa. Silly or not, kids being afraid of the advertising for this film put it in a league of its own upon release. While it wasn't the first film to feature a killer Santa, Christmas Evil beat that by a couple of years, it's certainly the most infamous. The imagery of a killer Saint Nick caused protests and picketing across the country. Critics attacked the film. Roger Ebert went so far as to shame the filmmakers on national TV. Michael Wilmington, writing for the Los Angeles Times, said, It's fairly safe to predict that Silent Night, Deadly Night will start making worst movies of all time lists almost immediately. This, of course, did not deter horror fans, many of whom chose to see this film over another horror film that released that same week, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Even with the horror community's support, TriStar Pictures, which at the time was a subsidiary of Coca-Cola, waved the white flag and pulled the film from theaters after just two weeks. It didn't even make it until December. So the film starts with one of the scarier openings and really mean-spirited openings to any slasher film. Billy, who's five, is brought to a mental hospital to see his grandfather on Christmas Eve. Uh, 1971. The grandfather does not speak. He's confined to a wheelchair. So Billy's parents leave to talk with a doctor and grandpa springs to life and spins a terrifying monologue about how Billy should be scared on Christmas Eve because Santa Claus punishes those who have been naughty, then returns to his catatonic state. On their way home, the family runs into a criminal dressed in a Santa suit and an attempted carjacking turns deadly. Billy's father is shot in the head. His mother has her throat slashed while fighting off a rape attempt in the middle of the street, all while Billy watches from a bush. Three years later, we catch up with Billy and his little brother. They're now living in an orphanage run by the church, and they don't know how to deal with Billy's Santa phobia. So <laughs> when Christmas Eve comes around, they tie him to the bed. 
They're real mean there. Billy also learns that sex is something that the devil does when he witnesses two teens belted at the hands of the cruel headmaster mid-coitus. We then, of course, fast forward to what would have been present day 1984. Billy is a strapping young 18-year-old who's been hired by the local toy store to move boxes in the back of the shop. And we get to see all these retro G.I. Joe and Matchbox sets, which totally gave me a kick of nostalgia. Working in a toy store probably wasn't the best move, though, if you're afraid of Santa. And even worse, the owner of the store forces Billy to dress as jolly old Saint Nick, and of course that's when all hell breaks loose. So that's kind of the setup for number one. Now that movie I do recommend watching. I think it's a pretty solid, really fun Christmas slasher, but uh, I hadn't seen two. Successful horror sequels give fans more of what drew them to the theater for the original. You're supposed to have better scares, bloodier kills, more of the surviving characters that we fell in love with before. Great sequels foster a deeper connection with the source, rekindling that magic while providing a new experience in a familiar world. Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is not one of those sequels. In fact, it's tough to even call this project a feature-length film at all. It details the story of Ricky, Billy's younger brother, and his descent into madness and murder as he recounts his sins to a doctor at an insane asylum. Instead of trusting that the audience saw the first film, this one recaps the first film for about 45 minutes, with shortcuts back to the asylum to ensure that you're watching number two. Since the runtime is only about an hour and a half long, with 10 minutes of that being credits, because it lists the entire credits from the first film first, and then this film, it's only around 35 minutes worth of new footage. It also feels like it was 35 minutes shot for a completely different film for much of the runtime because the story totally lacks continuity. Like when Ricky at one point says, my mom couldn't afford to send me to college because his mother died in the opening scene of the first movie when he was an infant in the back of the car. He's also telling a bunch of flashbacks that he never would have been privy to because again, he was an infant in his car seat in the back of a car. He would have never seen any of the stuff happening that we see on screen. Ricky is played by Eric Freeman, who I had seen in the later film Murder Weapon, albeit under the pseudonym Damon Charles to avoid SAG issues, but I hadn't seen him in anything else. He's eccentric, delivering every line full of stagnant rage as if a vein in his forehead could pop at any minute. James Newman plays the therapist in a typical uptight and very uninteresting way. The slasher aspect of the film, if you can even call it that, is pretty weak, although there are a few good kills along the way. Standouts include an umbrella through the torso, an electrified face, and a rampage through a neighborhood that is both absurd and endlessly entertaining due to Ricky's maniacal laugh. Uh, people will probably know this from Twitter memes where you see Garbage Day! That's where this comes from. Now, Ricky, he, he, he honestly feels like he's an alien in a human's body who just learned what laughing was, who just learned what talking was. It's real funny. And there's a tough-as-nails elderly nun as the final girl, and that's kind of a nice nuance. There's also a very entertaining scene that takes place in a movie theater, stoking any film fan's desire to choke out rude, talkative moviegoers. But outside of those few highlights, this is a hard film to recommend, especially if you've seen the first. And the most offensive thing about this movie is that it has nothing to do with Christmas until the last 10 minutes. So I'm going to say, please go watch Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984. For number two, you can skip it. Or just wait like five years until you forgot what happened in the first one, then go back and watch number two, and it's like you're watching two movies at once. All right, the main film that I saw this week was brand new on Paramount Plus. This is a 2023 film called Finest Kind. I got a proposition for you. I need you to take my boat out for a run. Yeah, okay, Pop. Tom. I was wondering maybe you needed an extra deckhand. 
<laughs> my brother. I'm curious. Curious about what, Charlie? About me. About you too, maybe. We're gonna show you what real fishermen can do. We're going to Canadian waters. What happens if you get caught? I got a new sensation. Getting caught is not an option. Canadian Coast Guard. Your vessel's been seized. I got a $100,000 fine. I'm gonna lose my father's boat. I never should have trusted you. I do not understand the way you're built. You built me. I remember hearing about Finest Kind way back in 2017, it must have been. The synopsis read, The story centers on two half-brothers to be played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Ansel Elgort that are reunited as adults after being raised by different fathers. When one discovers his estranged father only has months to live, he strikes a dangerous deal with a crime syndicate, putting him and his brother on a collision course with the Boston underworld. Zendaya was also attached, and Brian Helgeland, who wrote the film, was also set to direct. Since then, I hadn't heard anything about it, so I saw this film pop up on Paramount+, Plus, and I was excited to watch it, even though I had pretty much forgotten what it was about. I just remember, hey, Jake Gyllenhaal's in this. This is a new Jake Gyllenhaal movie. I gotta see it. Unfortunately, in the six-plus years it took to get the film made, there were a few cast adjustments. Uh, pretty much everybody. Jake Gyllenhaal was replaced by Ben Foster. Ben Foster's always great, so that, eh, not, not too much of a drawback. Ansel Elgort was replaced by Toby Wallace, who I had never seen before, and Zendaya was replaced by Jenna Ortega. Now, it's kind of hard to recap what this film is about because it feels like there are multiple films smushed together here. As the film opens, Charlie, who's played by Toby Wallace, finds his half-brother Tom, Ben Foster, on the docks. He's uh, out of school for the summer. He wants to join the crew to try and pay his way to college on uh, Tom's fishing boat. And Tom reluctantly agrees, and we're introduced to his crew, Schemo, Costa, and Nunez. Less than a day into the journey, the boat sinks, and the guys are pulled out of a rescue boat by the Coast Guard. Regrouping on shore, Charlie's dad confronts him about his newfound fishing interest when he should be spending the summer prepping for law school. So at first, of course, I thought, all right, we're going to be watching a movie about these guys trying to get off of a boat. And then they're instantly rescued. And then I thought, all right, we're watching a familial drama about a kid torn between the camaraderie he has with his half-brother and his lawyer dad who wants to see his kid's name on a law firm business card. Now, since the boat sank, the crew needs to find another boat. Enter Mr. Eldridge, Tom's dad, played by Tommy Lee Jones. He needs money for a reason that he's keeping close to the chest, so he offers his boat to Tom and the crew. But during the journey, they get into some trouble in the waters between Canada and the U.S. because they're knowingly trolling in places they shouldn't be. Now we feel like we have another movie, and this segment feels like it's going to be this kind of stealth mission. We gotta fly under the radar. If we get caught, it's gonna be really bad. So that's where the, the film is going at this point. Now, we skip pretty quickly out of that, and after the consequences... There's yet another plot point where the crew is tagged in to do a drug run, and then we start barreling toward the end of the film and really get into that actual logline. The first time we see the drug dealer on screen is an hour and 20 minutes in to this two-hour film. Now, there are a couple of good things about the movie. Brian Helgeland is a solid director. He's not flashy, but he, you know, he gets the job done. The acting is pretty good. Ben Foster is great as usual, really playing toward his type of perpetually angry at the world character he's so often cast as. Tommy Lee Jones is great as usual as an estranged father trying to make things right because there isn't much sand left in the hourglass. 
Uh, and then Toby Wallace, who, like I said, I'd never seen before. He was pretty good as Charlie, I guess. He had what felt like a good level of awkwardness with the older seasoned crew. But when he tries to act tough, boy, I just do not buy it. Jenna Ortega plays Charlie's love interest, Mabel. She was fine, although she didn't really have much to do. She wasn't in the movie that much. And while I liked the chemistry between the boat crew, which I felt was really fun, I didn't feel the same way about Charlie and Mabel. I'll get into that in a second. When it finally starts getting to the crime element of the movie, I thought that part was pretty fun. Clayne Crawford is great as Weeks, the drug dealer. He just really portrays a scumbag so well. And I thought the climax to the movie was pretty exciting, although after the climax, we still go for like another 15 minutes when we really didn't need to. Now, tonally, this movie is a complete mess. And it is edited so strangely. I was able to find the 2017 script. And while it doesn't feel like a whole lot was changed from that script, I mean, there were some things like uh, Jenna Ortega's character is supposed to be underage and the, the kids having sex with an underage girl. Uh, they wisely changed that for the movie. But reading that, you could see where they decided to shake things up in the editing room, and I don't think it was for the better. Scenes often felt disjointed. It, it kind of felt like puzzle pieces that weren't connecting correctly. And you watch the movie and then you read the script and you realize they just put things out of order for some reason. There are also tons of examples of extraneous dialogue from a filmmaker who seems to have little respect for or faith in his audience. For example, there's a scene where Mabel is driving like a maniac to get Charlie to the boat and it's shot very tightly in the car and you have Charlie yelling out in clearly ADR dialogue, that's a sidewalk, we're driving on a sidewalk. A lot of that kind of stuff just felt so clunky, so unnecessary. And the love story, I mentioned it before, it just feels so haphazardly slapped into the movie. It added nothing. If you cut her character out, you could almost have the same movie, just cut 20 minutes of the runtime. It did not feel earned. It was like they spent half a day together and now they are madly in love. Do you find me smart, Charlie? Yeah, you're the smartest girl. Go to community college. Ugh, I just, I could not care less if these folks ended up together or not. I find this film really hard to recommend. There are some good performances here, but the movie takes way too long to get interesting. I bet that if you gave me a bit of time and you gave me some of the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor, we could get this edited down to a tight 90-minute crime-focused movie, but what we've got here are three mini-movies that don't play nicely with each other. Certainly not nice enough to recommend. I gave Finest Kind two stars on Letterboxd. Anyway, that wraps it up for this mini-episode. I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and I will talk to you in the new year. <laughs>